This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Uh, this is Mike Hussein. I'm on the faculty here at the Wharton School, and I have the privilege today of sitting down with Mary McVeigh, who is the co-founder of Soccer Without Borders. And we're going to be talking uh, next few minutes about uh, that sport and Mary's building of a, of a worldwide network of people who work with uh, young people, with women in some countries, uh, those who are refugees, to help them through soccer uh, keep their feet on the ground and get forward in life. So, Mary, great to have you here in the studio. Thanks for having me. Look forward to our dialogue. Uh, let's just start uh, maybe a little bit with you. I think you went to Dartmouth College, played soccer there, even turned pro for a while. So you've got a soccer career behind you yourself. I do. I've, I've played soccer since I was four. Uh, I still play very recreationally uh, in Boston. Yeah. But I've just been very fortunate to have had the chance to you know, have that be a part of my life and opportunities just kept, kept coming, I guess. And I've, I've built a, a network of friendships and great coaches that have really shaped me and really shaped the outcome of my life. Well, that's great. And uh, most people, when they play a, a collegiate sport at that, um, at that time in their lives, when college is finished, they are finished with the sport. Uh, those who turn pro, usually by age 22 or 23, or they're out of the NBA or NFL, but you've managed to keep your, your feet in the sport, so to speak, <laughs> even as you left professional playing yourself. And in forming this organization, it's got a great title, a great name for it, Soccer Without Borders. Uh, this really is a, a cause-driven agenda here. So give us a uh, little bit about the mission of your organization and why you got it going. You're the co-founder, so... Why did you do this? <laughs> so soccer is one of the world's few universal languages, and that, that can be really powerful. I mean, you think about a World Cup and how many people that brings together, how many people watch, how many people are passionate about it. And so the idea is how do you use that to influence positive change? How do you use that to motivate kids to reach their potential? How do you use that to build bridges across racial, economic uh, cultural, religious divides, and really bring people together um, and build something positive. So that was kind of the idea when we set out was yeah. was how do we mm. use this sport that has has a lot of really important interpersonal lessons that you can draw on uh, to to build character, to build skills, um, but then also to build community and. You know, we've been exploring that now for 10 years, and, and I wouldn't say we've got it perfectly right, but we're, we're doing something good, and, yeah. uh, you know, the model's been working. It's been applied in a lot of different contexts, and we're, we're excited to keep innovating and, and keep finding a way to use this universal language to, mm -hmm. uh, for positive outcomes. Mary, I know you've got an office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. That's where it all kind of comes from these days, and you've got four or 500 volunteers around the world working with you on this. But let's make it more personal. Let's um, fly with you down to Nicaragua, uh, maybe drive an hour outside of the capital there to uh, a small town. It's uh, called uh, Granada, after the Spanish town by the same name. Uh, uh, different from the island of Grenada, which has a certain <laughs> history that we're uh, probably mostly familiar with. Uh, you're, uh, you arrive, you probably got there by bus. Uh, and uh, just let's make it, it a startup. It's a pickup truck, actually. Okay, not yeah. even a bus. <laughs> you wish it had been a bus. So you're a, you pop out of the back of a pickup yeah. truck, and then what? 
you know, the, our goal when I first went to Granada was to find a way to to give access to this amazing sport to girls. Uh, and that's something that was really not done. There was there was so many levels of boys soccer and boys sports, particularly baseball and soccer, that had been built at the time. There was boys leagues from under ten all the way up to Premier League professional. But on the women's side, it was it was virtually non-existent. And there's a lot of cultural economic reasons why that was so. Um, so the first, I would say the first uh, memory that I have of, of really seeing what this could do is, um, you know, we started doing soccer clinics in schools around Granada. And I was joined by my friend Ann Cook, who's now the associate head coach at Penn State. And we, on our way home from, from work that day, we came across a pickup game. There were six men playing three versus three, literally under like a street light. And it was nine or ten o'clock at night, uh, maybe a little later. And you couldn't resist. And we couldn't resist. So it was two two of us women, and then our our friend Chepe, who was Nicaraguan, who had been helping us build the program. And so we had three. We had enough to play in. So, he, you know, he asked, "Could we could we play winner?" And they literally just looked at us and and laughed. And you know, they had no idea that Ann Cook was a Herman Trophy finalist, played in the WUSA. She's a, she's amazing. You were all American yourself. I, I could try to hold my own, and yeah. um, so we played in. And it was the typical style. You know, you score, you stay. And we won nine games in a row. <laughs> and you could see at first it was you know who are these women, and then it was you know they're they're. They're joking with each other. Oh, she beat you, and they were embarrassed. Yeah. And then by the end, it was just we were just another team. Common ground. And that that was when I knew that, you know, this this could change people's perspective. They they didn't yeah. need to be embarrassed about losing to women. It was just they're good players, and they could see us that way. It's a really interesting point too, because in this case, you're playing against them, but nonetheless, <laughs> you bridged across the divide by playing against them. The common ground was the game of soccer. And it's, it's about getting people to see each other for, their, for who they are, for their talents, not by, you know, some stereotype or some perception of, of what their limits are. Yeah. And getting people themselves to see that, too. You know, have, ha- helping the girls see you can be anything you want to be. You know, it's not just what society tells you your limits are. So, Mary, when you uh, are there, maybe the next day after this game, uh, you are a startup. You've arrived. You might have yeah. a few contacts there, but you don't have a team. You don't have women out there, girls out there playing. Yeah. So take us through the, the first couple months when you had literally nothing and you had to build something. <laughs> uh, it's really about making contacts and figuring out who who are champions on the ground. So it wasn't about us being able, you know, me being able to go home and do this from afar. It was who are people here that believe in the same mission. So one of the first things we did was I joined a men's team since there was no women's team, and a lot of the men on that team are, are became coaches of ours. Um, we also managed to find the, the handful of women that had kind of challenged tradition and, and were playing and roped them in <laughs> to become mm-hmm. coaches um, and then literally went door to door, school to school, inviting girls to play. And, um, you know, you do little clinics and show them they think they can't play. You, you watch them go through this transformation of, I can't do that. That's not for me. And then, oh, I can. You know, I can get two juggles or I can make that pass. Um, and, and they get hooked because it's something exciting. It's new. There's an adult that's interested in, in me and, and my skills, and I, I feel positive. And, and we were able yeah. to, to bring girls into the fold that way and get something started that could sustain. 
all people doing startups say they have some great days and they have some really yeah. tough ones. So what, what were one or two of your setbacks along the way? Um, there, there have been many. Um, I think one that stands out, since we're talking about Nicaragua, uh, finding, finding your own limits of what you can and can't do. You know, these, the challenges of, of poverty and of equality, they're, they're very complex. And so you can only provide so many services and so many resources. So we had this one girl, uh, Yelba, who lived right next to the one soccer field in town. So she was one of those women. She had grown up playing with the boys. And she came out to our practice, and she was talented. And, you know, we, you know our eyes lit up and saying, you know, we're not here to be, make professional players, but, you know, this girl clearly has a passion for it. Um, so through the program, she ended up playing for the under-20 Nicaraguan national team, which was oh. very disorganized at the time, but, you know, existed a, a huge breakthrough resource. Um, but just the complexity of, of the need she had, you know, her, her parents mm. were really upset that she made the national team. It was in Managua. It meant she, she couldn't do as many chores around the house. You know, who's going to pick up that slack? The, the national team was paying for her bus fare, which they would at oftentimes steal, you know, if you're going to have this resource, why should it be used for sport? That's crazy. Um, it was just very complicated. Health issues, you know, somebody who's coming from a background that, that she had, her nutritional needs hadn't been met, so playing at a higher level, mm -hmm. could her body handle that? So it just sort of took us down a road of, you know, can we be a school and a hospital and a counselor and all of these things? You know, what's the limits of what we can do? And the answer was yes. And the answer was was actually no. You know, we ended up not being able to to bridge that for yeah. her. Um, it, at times, it took up. You know, all of our focus was on this one girl. We realized when there were so many others that were in the program. Yeah. You can't. You know, how many resources can you devote mm -hmm. to one person? Mm -hmm. So it was really a gut check of what can we do, what can we do well, what are the limits, and when when do you need to let someone go if if you can't meet the needs that mm -hmm. uh, that they have? I think that lesson always replays for me is yeah. uh, recognizing what you can and can't do, and making sure that the things you do you do choose to do, uh, that you can sustain them and, and do them well. You know, it's like a lot of people getting anything going. They've, they've got a vision of where they want to go, but the actual model of how to do it, you've got to kind of event by doing and learning and Trial two steps and forward and, and one step <laughs> back. So that was you. Mary, to reference the uh, title of your organization, though, Soccer Without Borders. Mm -hmm. So help us understand what you mean by Without Borders. Um, you know, I think it speaks to the universality of the game, and it also speaks to breaking down barriers. It's, it's about how do we erase some barriers that, that exist in, in the world for, mm -hmm. based on different circumstances. So one of our major focus areas right now is on the newcomer population, refugees, asylees, immigrants, and, you know, literally borders comes to mind when you think about that and you think about people who have are stateless, have lost their home, have been you know, forced to flee war, persecution, violence. And you know, how can you help them rebuild home in a new mm -hmm. place? And soccer, can, soccer is a pretty powerful tool uh, in, that, in that effort. Make, make the connections. So we, uh, let's take uh, refugees in maybe Turkey these days or Greece or, or Nicaragua. Uh, there are a couple million people traveling by foot today as we speak, as we well know. And as they come into a team, uh, they build at least a relationship with uh, the coaches and the parents and so on. But then how does this bridge into something bigger than soccer yeah. itself? 
So, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there. The, the family and support of team is incredibly powerful. And the, the mentor mentee relationship that's formed with the coach. But then there's there's other concrete skills and resources that kids need in order to access opportunities and pathways, um, particularly in the U.S. You know, how do you fill out a FAFSA form? How do you do you know to take the SAT? Are you prepared for the mm-hmm. SAT? Um, what sort of interview skills do you have? Are you comfortable talking you know, talking with somebody and presenting presenting yourself in a way that could help get you a job? You know, these are all very hard skills that uh, kids need to practice. And coming from a number of different cultural backgrounds, interrupted schooling, uh, you know, they may not have had sort of a pathway that's very consistent that builds up to a job or school, higher education. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're, you know, trying to fill in those gaps. One of our, one of my peers in this work, I thought had a great analogy the other day. He said, it's like Swiss cheese. There's a lot of holes, and they're not all in yeah. the same place. And so you're trying to plug them. It, you're, it's not about a, a consistent model that's going to work for everybody. It's about the model that's flexible enough to identify the holes and provide the resources to fill them. You know, I think historically the U.S. Peace Corps often sent people who would become coaches in developing areas as well. And the model that you're doing or offering up now is not unlike, I think, what the Peace Corps has done historically which is to help people through an initial engagement in a sporting activity. Could be badminton, could be soccer, could be baseball in some areas. But it's baseball plus or it's soccer plus. Let's uh, think about the plus. And how do you, after you've got a team, maybe even a winning team, how do you help, say, the girls in uh, Nicaragua then take the next step in in putting uh, their future together? So one thing we do is is try to identify what are – what are the obstacles or the pitfalls that exist? What are the challenges that they're going to face? You know, in Nicaragua, some of the research would tell you that, you know, 28% of girls are pregnant by the time they're 18. That's a challenge. Mm-hmm. 52% of kids don't make it on to secondary school. That's a challenge. So you can identify what are sort of the common pitfalls and how can we shape our program to address this. So one thing in Nicaragua we offer is um, in sixth grade, we, we want to bridge that transition to secondary school. So starting in sixth grade, we offer what we call half scholarships. P- public school in Nicaragua is not free. There's, mm. there's uniforms. There's a small matriculation fee. Um, so can we provide that? If the girls come. When they come to an activity, they earn a point. They can use those points to purchase school uniforms right. and school supplies. Um, and then mm. in secondary school, we offer full scholarships, which they can actually, if they earn it through the program, positive participation, um, there's an application that we help with, uh, they can actually choose any secondary school they want and, and we pay for it. So we're, tr- we're identifying that this is, this is a period of life where they can go one of two directions. How can we intervene and, and make sure it's a positive path? Um, so it's, I think that's how you know, the Peace Corps has some very concrete areas that they focus on and people are trained for. And I think what we try to do is similarly understand the culture and context that we're working in and make sure that we shape the program to meet those specific needs. As I think about the girls, say, who are hopefully heading towards high school or beyond in Nicaragua, I'm thinking they're residential, they're there, their families live there. When it comes to people on the immigrant trail, they're often not there that long. Families have been broken up. Yeah. So a much more difficult population to work with. How do you go about even creating a team that's sustainable and and um, able to 
repeatedly play if uh, people are on the move as they often are mm -hmm. as immigrants? I mean, that is, that is a significant challenge. So one is you want to catch them early and be a resource early. So we work directly with resettlement agencies, with schools, with community partners that would know when people arrive you know, that they're here and, and immediately try to get them into something mm -hmm. positive. So we don't have a closed door policy with, with our team. Sometimes our teams can swell to 45 kids over the course of a season or more. Um, you know, it's not what people traditionally think of as a team. But then we do, you know, kids want to play games. And, and sure. in the United States, playing games means pass cards and paperwork. And um, so bridging that, you know, how do you get a kid ready to be able to play on the team, that's, that's some of the, you know, there's a lot of problem solving that our coaches do. And it's also motivation for the kids. They arrive, they play in, they get to know the community, they immediately have access to all the academic support, language support, but to play on that team, they got to stick with it. And, you know, they can vote with their feet. They can kind of control their own fate in that regard. Yeah. Um, I will say we had, we had one family that was in our program in Oakland that then moved to Greeley, Colorado, uh, where we have another program, and ended up captaining our middle school mm -hmm. team in Greeley. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would be so amazing if that could happen more often, because families do they, they do move and migrate uh, in order to pursue opportunities where there's jobs. We are seeing a huge migration to the Midwest, um, Central Plains. Our Colorado program tends to be a second resettlement type mm -hmm. of city. And so you do start to see the differences in where people move and where opportunities are. So, Mary, to put my words on it, you've got a, uh, uh, a moment where people can be drawn in for the love of the sport. Mm -hmm. But with that, you open up um, opportunities and channels to help them take the next step in life, whether it's school or maybe securing employment mm -hmm. or who knows, maybe even playing professionally for a year <laughs> or two. Uh, thinking of it uh, that way, it reminds me again of organizations that start out with a, a particular focus mm -hmm. and it works, but then those who are the creators or one of the two uh, co-founders, you begin to think, well, what about taking that, uh, that basic model, soccer now initially, but mm -hmm. why just soccer? Why not right. basketball? Why not badminton? So uh, to use the language, what about the adjacencies? You've probably yeah. thought about that so far. You're not into that, but maybe you would be. Well, I was a basketball player in high school, so I have oh, a, good. <laughs> I got a head start on that, that too. Sport. But um, we are a part of a network of several mm -hmm. networks, um, but one that comes to mind that kind of speaks to what you're you're talking about is called Up to Us Sports, and they are a coalition of what we call sport-based youth development organizations. So organizations that are that sport plus, or right. that are doing more than sport, <laughs> and. It's all different kinds of sports. I, it's, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's more sports than I knew existed. Um, you know, basketball, lacrosse, football, golf. There's so many great lessons that you can yeah, pull like, out of different sports. The sort of youth Olympics, it, just about everything. Yeah, it's just, you know, and, and each sport has, has different lessons that are inherent. Yeah. I really appreciate those of soccer and think in terms of building bridges across culture and, and across divides. Soccer is uniquely suited for that, I think. Um, but I can also see so much value in, in each and every sport and the skills that it can teach. Yeah. Thinking about outcome, uh, when you look at the end of the day at what you've done, what would be a, a, a metric of when you've succeeded uh, with, let's make, that, make it the team down in Nicaragua. How do you know when that particular setting or that particular investment of your time was paying off? 
Um, you know, I think measuring impact with kids is is incredibly challenging for the same reason that, you know, when you're a parent, you're, you know you're planting seeds and you don't know exactly what's, what's going to grow. Um, but we have boiled down uh, what we try to measure into five things. Uh, one is academic advancement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are, they, are they able to gain access to those credentials that are meaningful, that are going to open doors? One is language development, particularly with newcomers. Can you acquire the language skills you need to participate in the economy and access opportunities? One is social capital. So how well are we connecting kids to networks and, and safety nets? Um, one is healthy lifestyles which is, you know, being a happy, healthy, active person who is able to avoid risky behaviors and, um, you know, value their body. Um, And the last one's personal development, which is, uh, I think, a little bit more abstract, but we want to develop happy, confident, competent, compassionate people, people who are are Mm -hmm. good people. I think too often kids have a lot of external expectations that are put on them. You know, other people define success for them. You know, it looks like pen or it looks like mm-hmm. that job. And we want to equip the kids with the skills they need to reach their full potential, whatever that is for them. Um, and I think that's, for me, if they're happy, healthy individuals who are reaching their goals and, and aspiring towards that, that's good. That's good enough for me. Scale here is your opportunity, but also your challenge. Uh, You're active in, I think, some 50 countries. You've got programs in Central America, Africa, and beyond. If we think of it that way, there are probably a billion people out there that are uh, in need of this kind of transitional moment as they leave early childhood and get into later childhood and then on. So uh, in terms of the number of people you're reaching right now and the number of young people you'd like to reach 10 or 15 years out. What kind of scale are we looking at? Um, So just to, I don't want to overstate our our reach right now, but we we worked with kids from more than 50 countries of origin, but we haven't actually programmed in 50 Mm -hmm. countries. Do I think the model could be relevant to really any country? Absolutely. Um, Do we have a goal of being a behemoth, <laughs> a nonprofit, not, no. Yeah. Um, we want to make sure that the model is effective, that we're being true to the communities where we are, um, and that we're, we're doing the best we can to meet the overwhelming need. I've, we get approached every single week to open a new program in some city. I know the need is there. The demand is there. So right now we're really focused on the places where we are, how do we maximize that infrastructure, what are the next few places that, that really have a need that we could replicate? But also, how do we package this tool so that other people like us could take it and run with it and adapt it to, mm-hmm. to their community? We don't need to be experts in every culture and language across the world. Um, but I think if we have a tool that works, then, yeah, we, we need to find a way to share it. And you're probably eminently, eminently scalable because you do depend on volunteers. You don't have to raise a lot of money to put a field staff out there. And in that sense, as, a, uh, as volunteers are your fundamental building blocks here, in principle, 10 years out, you could be reaching any number of communities, any number of groups around the world. Um, the volunteers are actually not our <laughs> building block anymore. We do have staff ev- do. everywhere. Okay, yeah, great. so we leverage volunteers um, for a number of different roles, but it's led by trained staff. I mean, when you're working with kids, I think there's a really strong 
and necessary uh, vetting process and training process, particularly kids who've experienced trauma, to make sure that the, the people we put in the field are trained. Mm-hmm. So volunteers serve a very crucial supporting role, um, but tend to not be in a, in a leading role. And that is a limiting factor in terms totally. of scale. Um, so what we are looking at is who are the community organizations that we could partner with and that are already there, that already have that infrastructure, have that leadership, see what they're missing. I think one thing that a lot of organizations are missing is women <laughs> in, in sport. It's We have an unbelievable supply of women athletes that is incredibly uncommon around the world. Everywhere I go, it's it's men who are coaching. And so it's not surprising that women make up less than 10% of soccer players in the world's global sport when they have nobody to, to see and look to. Um, so I think there's, a, there's some opportunity areas for things that, that we as an American organization could export, um, but there's also a lot of work to be done here mm-hmm. in, in our communities here with newcomers arriving and girls here who aren't accessing sport in the way that they could. Thank goodness for many things, including Title IX. That's probably had uh, a certain many factors that contributed to women in sports, but Title IX, going way back in our history, part yeah. of the uh, U.S. Civil Rights Act, has probably been vital for helping you now it is. have the flow of women who want to work with you. It was a game-changing moment in, into to mandate equity, and is is an incredible statement. Yeah. And, you know, right now I'm, I'm following what's going on in FIFA very closely in terms of mandating not quite equity but participation by women at, at every level. You know, that's going to trickle down. It's going to open doors for girls in sport. We're already seeing it in Nicaragua. Um, but I think those who've, who've had the opportunity and that privilege, from my perspective, have an obligation to pay mm-hmm. it forward. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that is something that really resonates with women in the U.S., that, you know, can we create an avenue that they can step up and, and try to find a way to pay it forward? Got a couple of more personal closing questions here. Okay. Uh, number one, what really drew you into this? What was the, I don't know, triggering moment or the epiphany that led you to do what you're doing? <laughs> um, I think one moment that stands out is when I was coaching at Lehigh. I was a grad student there, which is how I met uh, the founder, Ben Gucciardi. He, he launched this out of a Lehigh Entrepreneurship Program. Um, I had the chance to travel to South America to see the World Cup qualifiers for South America. And I had never been really exposed to the inequality that, that can exist for women elsewhere. And I saw it. I mean, it was empty stadiums. It was, there was no program. <laughs> there was coaches who were sitting in the corner in the shade, uh, you know, not, you know, they were, they were being punished to be the women's coach. And that just really didn't, I don't know, it just stuck with me. It didn't, it didn't sit well. And, you know, what can I do about this? Mm-hmm. And then I met Ben, and he had this phenomenal idea to, to try to address some of these inequities, to try to really build a, a microcosm of a better world through soccer. And, you know, it just went from there. And maybe last query here, as you reflect on who you are now and how you became what you're doing mm-hmm. and think about the um, uh, the moments that did make a difference in your own life course here. Uh, for those who might be watching this particular dialogue who are thinking, gee, I might want to do something like that. Yeah. What advice would you have for somebody who's 
maybe involved in athletics or something equivalent who would like to think about working with the youth of the world to help them get from point A to point B the way you've been doing? Yeah. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of ways that people can get involved. I think the first thing they should do is is really think about the skills they have and what they can bring. Um, I think one sort of misconception is that passion is enough, that, you know, I, I like soccer or I, I like working with kids. You know, there's got to be a way I can help. You know, ultimately running an organization is business and, and businesses need skills. <laughs> you know, we need you need marketing, you need a, an IT person, you need legal help, you need, you need skills. And I think um, that, that moment when somebody says, you know, I can connect something that I do well to, to a greater good, you know, that's magical. And we are very mm-hmm. fortunate to have found people who are willing to help and lend their talents and skills and resources to what we're doing at different moments. You know, one of my former players at Lehigh helped us build a website that was prepared for, you know, the new mobile world. <laughs> that the fact that she would apply her talent and skill for that to to this work is amazing. It's opened all kinds of doors for us. So I think really, reckon, you know, dialing in on what what talent do you have to offer, and if it is coaching or teaching, oh my gosh, you are a saint because <laughs> people who work mm. with kids, they they are so undervalued. And it is a it is a skill. Um, so if that's your skill, please apply it to something, um, to an organization that's doing this work. But if you have other skills, you can that can be really useful too. That's great, Mary. Thank you for your great guidance on that, and thank you for joining the program today. Thank you so much for having me. What a what an amazing community, and we are so f- excited to be a part of it. In a great to way. have you as part of our community. Thank you very All right, much. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.